we find the story and that really helps when you're trying to prioritize what messaging comes first. When you're thinking through the user journey, a sense of story, a sense of narrative, a sense of problem, solution, outcome can really help guide some of the decision-making that goes beyond just the words on the screen. This is Writers in Tech, a podcast where today's top content strategists, UX writers, and content designers share their well-kept industry secrets. Hello and welcome everyone to Writers in Tech, a podcast that brought you by the UX Writing Hub. This is actually the 100th episode of the podcast Writers in Tech. And I couldn't be more excited to have here my guest for today. Her name is Jen Shreve, and Jen is a content design lead at Google. And she's here with us. Jen, how are you? Hello. Hi, I'm good. How are you? I'm pretty good. Excited for our call for today. Thank you for coming. It's a pleasure. So before we'll start, tell us a little bit about your background and how did you find yourself doing what you do? I'm going to age myself right from the beginning. When I graduated from college, the internet was very, very young, very new. And my college newspaper was one of the first to have a website of any kind. And I was just immediately fascinated by the possibilities of communication in this new new medium. And so... That led me to get my early job, my first job, which was at a website called Salon.com. I was like one of the ninth employees and I was an assistant editor and I did all kinds of copywriting and things. But I was as interested in the technology that was kind of creating it as it as I was in kind of the things I was writing about. And so I've just had a career where I followed my passion. So I was I ended up being a technology journalist for many years writing about the industry I then moved into a mix of what we would call UX writing today. No one called it then and copywriting. I ended up working in the creative part of digital advertising. So I ended up doing everything from making like 8-bit video games that you play in a banner ad to videos. And and in that time, I kind of dipped in and out of Google, I would like to say. So I was. this is actually my third time there, but I was a freelancer the first two times actually three times. And then I converted finally to full-time and ended up in UX, which again, I had been kind of doing all along, but had never really called it that. And and there I've stayed. I'm, I really love it. That's amazing. What a journey. And I know that you have also background in journalism, right? So at some point you did journalism yeah. as well. Yeah, I still do my own writing. I had really started out writing essays and I've gone back to that. So I'm actually an early riser. I write in the mornings and occasionally when I'm happy with something I've written, I post it to Medium and share it on LinkedIn and other places so others can read it, hopefully benefit from it. Do you have some kind of a trick or tip to be consistent when it comes to writing, especially in the morning? Yeah. Something that I'm like struggling with lately. And I'm really trying hard. I think it's a couple things. One is actually getting to know your chronotype, as they call it. So understanding just when your energy is highest and lowest in the day. Mine happens to be in the morning. And so that was kind of piece one. But don't work against your your body. Don't work against your rhythm. Find the time when... you 
to devote that is best for you. The second thing is it's not willpower, it's routine. So really making a habit and a routine of something for me is the best way to be consistent and keep at it. And then the third piece of it is dropping your expectations of greatness or anything else to come out of it. It's it's about the practice, it's about doing the work and being curious about what comes out of that. And so I, I started following a process called the artist way. And there's a whole piece of this called morning pages. So you start your day writing two or three pages of just whatever is on your mind. And it's kind of like clearing out the trash of your brain. And then out of that, I was finding topics would emerge. And so then I had to make more time to start writing those down and shaping those into pieces that I could share. Sounds like a really cool process. It's an interesting point of view, because some people say that in the end of the day, you should just brain dump whatever you have in your mind and maybe that could turn up to be some interesting piece and there mm-hmm. are the early writers that prefer to write in the morning and the artist way i never heard about it and i would love to to read more about it sounds interesting yeah it's a great book and it's not just for writers it's she uses this technique for painters and all kinds of artists but yeah kind of a meant a meant to it it's sort of i think it's like five or eight weeks meant to help you kind of access your creative side and, and start to practice and take yourself seriously, which we all could probably use more of. <laughs> what do you think about everything that is happening right now with artificial intelligence and being creative? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting time. AI is a tool. It is not a human being. It has amazing potentials and amazing limitations. I think just as I started my career and being curious about the internet technology, I'm curious about AI. I think I'm cautious about it, but I'm trying to play with it every day and get to know it and, and correct it because I have the opportunity to do that sometimes at my work. And, but, you know, I hear a lot of fear around in the industry, especially among writers, is this going to replace us? And, you know, I, my response to that is I, I don't even think that makes sense. I mean, the AI can write some sentences and make them sound pretty good. That is the tip of the iceberg. If my work is an iceberg, 90% of what I do is not the writing, but all of the thinking and the process and the relationship building and collaboration that eventually results in those words, right? And so, so I see AI as, you know, a possible tool, but, you know, I, Frankly, I'm less interested in its language capabilities than I am in its potential to, say, diagnose diseases much faster and earlier than people can do. So, yeah, anyway, I try to excel at things that only humans can do um, and use the non-human tools as support and sometimes just interesting playthings. There are things that AI can do that humans can't do. We should certainly be interested in using those things to help us. Definitely. But talking about the artist way, I feel like we could get into like new levels of creativity using these tools. For example, new type of writings or new type of content production, even visual content production. Instead of like painting one hour in the morning, you could maybe think about different concepts and throw them into mid-journey, which is like this visual uh, painter that is doing some yeah. interesting things lately. I have a close friend who's a fiction writer. She has a novel coming out next year. She's also a technical writer. 
and she does some programming. And she, this was early days, several years ago, many years ago now, it feels like she took the contents of her discarded drafts for her fiction and fed them into a machine learning tool and created a bot that lived on Twitter. And then she had me take my, all of my discarded drafts of my short story collection and things like that. And she fed that into another one. And so then our bots talked to each other and they talked to each other for about two or three years. Um, <laughs> it was just this back and forth. And most of it made no sense, but it was, but I recognized my vocal patterns and her vocal patterns and just the way that we, yeah, the way we wrote our subject matter. So our little bots had taken something we had created out of our own minds and turned it into something else. And it was fun, like watching a tennis match. And I I think that probably violated Twitter policy for which I do not apologize. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Twitter violated our own... uh... Uh, yes. own, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the user of this app were violated many times in the past few months, I believe. We tried, uh, have you heard about this app named Blue Sky? I've been using it lately. Mm-hmm. No, I haven't. Tell me about it. So Jack Dorsey decided to replicate Twitter and recreate it with an app named Blue Sky. It's supposed to be decentralized, means that every person is in charge of their own like you can actually put your own domain over there and that would be your user and you'll host your own user. Mm-hmm. For now, it's invite only. So it feels like a very small room with not a lot of discussions, but it's been around for a few years now. So I just got my invite and it's interesting. People inside of it are excited and they say, yeah, they say Twitter is like the, they say that just like Microsoft Edge is the browser that you use to download Chrome, so Twitter is the social media that you use to get an invite for Blue Sky. That's what, like, the comparison that people are doing these days. Um, so I'm, I'm trying it. I'm trying it. For now, it's not a huge, huge, interesting thing, but hopefully it will be better than Twitter and we'll see many more people. Yeah, it's easy to take an existing product that has sort of evolved in all kinds of unpredictable ways and sort of pluck out what you like and what you want to keep about it and create something else. But I think the reality is most of the products we work on, right, are like more like Twitter, you know, like they, things grow and evolve in strange ways, a bit like slime molds. And we, <laughs> it's, yeah, hindsight is twenty twenty on any product, but when you're in it, as many of us are, it's, you know, you can't always see where it's going or what it's turning into. Definitely very unpredictable. We know that the search box named Google will evolve to so many suites of products like cloud and ads and maps yes. and, you know, insane. Yeah. I say that as someone who has launched a lot of products. So I've had the experience of kind of building things from scratch. I worked on the launch of Uniqlo.com in the US and then their global platform. I was the content lead writing all of the content and developing the voice and tone for the Google store launch. And you said the Uniqlo, and- the clothing store? Yeah, the clothing store. That was when I was at an agency. Uh, which was, you know, I Yeah, I loved, you know, it was one of those like dreams of mine. I really wanted to work on their brand because I loved their brand so much. It's, nice, it's a good brand. Very technological as well. Very Well, and they consider themselves a technology company. But we build these beautiful product experiences exactly the way we want them, right? And you hand, hand them off. And then you watch as they become 
something that you didn't expect or, you know, they grow ugly little pockets and things, you know, it's just, it's just the way it goes. But it's, I'm always remarking on the care and thought that goes into launching a product and then the lack of care and that can go into maintaining it and growing it. <laughs> what is the product that you've launched that you are the most proud of? That's a great question. I mean, I worked on the launch of my ad center for Google last and we launched in October of last year. It launched to all Google users. So it was a, the reach of this product was really huge. And the intention is to, you know, give people control over their personal data and as pertains to advertising. So that was a very exciting opportunity for me. I think we have all kind of lived in a world where ads happen to us and to actually give people agency over those ads and the information that's used, I think is an important step in the right direction of putting people first. I think I'm most proud of that. And also just, yeah, the scale and the amount of, you know, all the languages and everything, there was a lot that kind of went into getting that launch into place. But I had always wanted to work on like an experience that was generally unpleasant and painful for users and settings, <laughs> any kind of privacy settings or privacy information is that. And so I think what I'm most proud of with this project was that we really did our best to make it feel like a a consumer product, like an like a really like smooth user experience, making the language relatable, warm, human, and understanding, you know, helping people understand some very difficult concepts about what happens when you, I don't know, if you click an ad and then you go and see it somewhere else, what's happening there, right? So how do you start to explain these concepts to people in ways that they can actually understand and then actually use to make informed decisions? So yeah, most recent, most proud. Nice. Sounds good. It's like when I started to do marketing for the UX Writing Hub, which is the company that I run these days. So I got to know the marketing side of things. So I didn't know that you have a pixel on your website, which is what others might call a cookie or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. And it's paint you, right, in quotes. And then it's retargeting you and companies use this data afterwards, companies. Every basically company that targets you with ads can retarget you based on the data. And for me, it was really new when starting out. And I'm sure that if, for me, it was new. So my parents definitely are not aware to it. And my best friends that are not in the marketing industry would not be aware to it. So it sounds like a, quite of a challenge to communicate it to, let's say, the average Joe or average Jane. Yeah, just to, to everyday people. When I was a journalist, I interviewed a lot of scientists, especially I worked I did worked on a newsletter, a computer science newsletter, but the audience was donors. So they weren't people who were necessarily versed in the science. And I, you know, have a English degree and then a, a master of fine arts and creative writing. So I don't come from a science or tech background myself. And so I would have to find a way to get these people to tell me what they did and explain it to me in ways that I could understand well enough to explain to other people. I, that's still very much a part of my work today is, yeah, how does this work? I have to really ingest it and really know it very intuitively before I can make it clear to someone else what's happening and find the words. That's why I think the journalists make great UX writers because they know how to simplify complicated ideas and complicated technologies to people 
that would actually, you know, for people that could actually use it, help you to advocate for the user, basically. Yeah. And journalists are also, we find the story and that really helps when you're trying to prioritize what messaging comes first. When you're thinking through the user journey, a sense of story, a sense of narrative, a sense of problem, solution, outcome can really help guide some of the decision-making that goes beyond just the words on the screen. And you told me something really cool before we started about seeing people and not users and not as conversions, but actually see the people. So in your process, what would be the best way to to communicate to people, to see that, to also internally talk with your team and always talk about the people first? Yeah. You know, in UX, right, we have this expression, we call people our users, right? They are the people who use our products. I try to always take one step back before that and say, say we are all human beings and human beings have intrinsic value that is outside of whether they click my button or not. And so what, because if I see people that way, before I see them as someone using my product, before I see them as someone who is an audience that I want to convert or whatever, you know, whatever you're doing, right? How do I treat them, right? And so that might guide, that that in our work translates into things like, let's just say it's a shopping product, right? If I put the human before the consumer, then I want to make sure that the human being only buy something that they're really going to be happy with, that they really need, that really they really understand, right? And so then how can I make sure that the product description and the way that we're depicting the photography, all of those things, how do I make sure that the, the, that person has everything they need, right? Um, and then they decide, right? And so it's just saying, I, rather than trying to be deceitful and manipulative because you're not seeing the person, you're only seeing the monetary value that the person might bring you, you put them first. So it can influence all kinds of design decisions and all kinds of writing decisions. And it doesn't mean that you're, that you don't care, right? You know, if you're doing an e-commerce site, you care. You certainly want to sell pe- things to people, but you also want to make sure that they're happy with buying them and they're confident and they, so it's balancing those impulses. And I just, you know, I find increasingly we, we live in a culture where we don't see each other as human beings and we see each other's, I don't know, through our, the lens of productivity or the lens of profit or, you know, whatever it is. I wrote about this on my medium channel. You know, I had this encounter in a Trader Joe's in, so in real life and Trader Joe's actually, you want to talk about scaled content, right? Like they have this incredible, even their physical stores have an incredible story and content program, essentially the way that they message things, the way that their, their employees communicate with customers anyway. But I was in this Trader Joe's and this guy was stocking cheese. And I, you know, I said, excuse me, I'm so sorry to interrupt you. I just need to reach over your head. And he stopped what he was doing. He said, thank you. Thank you for just asking. He said, you wouldn't believe how many people just treat me like a shelf (laughs) to reach over without considering that I'm a person first. And so it's frankly a way of, it's just a way of engaging with people in the world that for me has and it, for me, honestly, didn't come naturally. I, I had to learn how to be this way. But now that I practice it on a daily basis, I, f- I find it incredibly valuable. And it makes me a lot more happy and proud of the work that I'm doing as well. That's awesome. I did want to talk with you about growing into a leadership role 
as a content designer, UX writer, it doesn't matter what, the, what your title, but we have many UX writers that until not that long time ago was the first UX writers in their companies or kind of built this role in their company. And now they're going to more of a leadership role. Mm-hmm. So what would be your tips for a person in that position, a person that want to grow into a leadership role or uh, organically, not organically, but naturally growing into a leadership role and they need some advice? Okay. I have a quirky perspective on leadership in general. Like I've worked in companies where, oh, the leads will pass down the knowledge and we shall follow. I don't know. It's And I call it leader worship. And I think it's very strange because to me, leadership is simply about the perspective that you are working from. So, so my point of view on leadership is that what makes a leader is simply, well, there's a number of things, but one of the most fundamental things is kind of the way that they're viewing the problems, right? So when you're starting your career, you're, if you think of it as a mountain, right, you're down at the base of the mountain and you are in the weeds, as we say, and you are working on solving these small, usually kind of individual discrete content problems. As you move up in towards leadership, if that's your goal, by the way, I think there's real value to staying in the weeds. I still enjoy being really close to that work, but you're viewing things from a different level. So you start to view things from a project level, and then you start to view things from a program level, and then you start to view things from a large organizational view. And so So the way that you're making decisions and the things that you're trying to change are simply different because of the level that you're working on. So I no longer write every single string, but I'm thinking about it systematically. Like how can we, how do we operate as a content team? How do we deliver our best work? What are the tools and processes that are going to allow that to happen? When I think about translation, how do we, How do we set ourselves up for success from the very start of the process to the end, right? That's how I basically think about leadership. So if you're interested in growing into leadership, start to expand your scope, expand your vision, start to think about problems one step above the way that you're thinking about them now. And and if you're not sure how to do that, go ask someone who's doing it. <laughs> what are the problems you're trying to solve? What are your motivations? Those are the kinds of questions we can ask to find out. Well, what how does that compare to the problems I'm trying to solve? What are my motivations? How do I move towards that? And then I think leadership takes the kind of confidence that only comes from humility, <laughs> which is really knowing what you don't know and also being willing to share the spotlight and shine it on others. Those those are all things that I think good leaders do and that anyone wanting to to lead and move into leadership should aspire to. Which kind of like books or articles do you have to recommend for someone that is in this position right now of growing into leadership? It's a great question. To be honest, I am not big on reading books about my work. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I so I yeah, I read, I read, I read outside my reading time. I don't really follow a lot of the stuff. I just kind of, what do you like to read? A few years ago, the world was feeling very bleak to me. And so I started a post-apocalyptic book club with some of my closest friends. And so we, we together read books about 
the end of the world. Some of them are nonfiction. We read about survivalists and bunker folks. We've read about climate issues. And then when, some of them are fiction. Some of them are deep, deep in the future. Some are speculative, more recently based. But then we've also started to go back and read about truly apocalyptic situations that have happened in the past. So so right now I'm reading a lot about the end of the world. I'm reading The Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck right now. And it's it's actually tremendously prescient. It's a beautifully written novel. And, he, and I turned to it during the layoffs, well, there's still more layoffs happening, right? But there's been a lot of layoffs. And there's this quote that in from the book about how in the Grapes of Wrath, farmers are being pushed off their land by banks. And it talks about how the banks were made by people, but they were not people and the people could not control them. And I, you know, I feel that way a lot about some of the systems and larger forces that we're all subject to. We've built these companies, we've built these technologies, but and we are people, but they are not people. Uh, <laughs> and it's hard to control them. And I think that's actually another point about leadership that's important to remember is leaders are not that powerful. I think we all kind of, they get to make big decisions. And But trying to steer these ships is no joke. And there's a lot, the more I move up in leadership, the more of the details and the things that I have cared about a great deal in the past, you have to let go of. And you can't, you can't be that leader who gets everything exactly the way you want. So there's a lot of powerlessness that comes with leadership as well and with the world we live in. So, and I think that's why it's so important that in our, that we individual humans treat each other the way we wish to be treated, that we treat our users the way we wish to be treated. We can be advocates for within these big systems and we don't have to become like them, even if we are part of them. Interesting. From post-apocalyptic point of view to leadership, that's... Uh, <laughs> Maybe they're combined. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's my... Have you watched the show The Last of Us? I started it because of my early mornings. I don't get to watch very much TV. That was something I had to give up. And I have a child, so I, I can only watch TV when they're not around. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm... <laughs> so it's I watched one episode. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good post-apocalyptic um, show. It is. It is. And yeah, from what I've seen and what I've heard, it's terrific. So yeah, it's on my yeah. slow watch list. <laughs> Take your time. All right. That's great. How do you think... I don't want to put you on the spot. Obviously, we ask every guest this question, which is how do you think we should name this episode? And then we have some kind of a brainstorming session where... We do talk about the topics that we've covered, such as leadership, in this, okay. in this instant case. Epoch, uh, leadership at the end of the world. <laughs> post-apocalyptic leadership, yeah. Post-apocalyptic leadership and content design. <laughs> oh, I think it's very timely. It's a good name, especially because so many people are talking about the end of the world with everything happening with artificial intelligence. Do you think it will lead us to the end of the world, by the way? Based on your, you know, um, obviously your post-apocalyptic uh, point of view, right? Oh, it's so interesting. I, I typically, right, it's something no one saw or expected that really undoes everything. So, uh, so did you watch Terminator? <laughs> I did watch Terminator. So you never know. No, I mean there there is a good reason to be concerned and to be urging caution, right, and to. For those of us in companies that are moving into these fields to be advocates for the right thing within those organizations, to be a squeaky wheel when we can do that. 
so yeah, maybe it's squeaky wheel <laughs> content design leadership. <laughs> with everything happening right now with ChatGPT, you know, and, and, and all of that. So you said that you think that there is a reason to concern, but why do you think? Like, why do you think that are the possibilities here? Like, I would let someone far more you know, <laughs> deep in AI answer what the concern should be. But I, what I do know, what I do recognize is it's a powerful, this is a powerful technology. It's accelerating. And as we've seen with every, like I said, I got started in my career, early days of the internet. I had no idea, you know, you, you could not envision where it would go and what it would do. And and there, you know, there haven't been a lot of checks and balances and we're seeing both good and bad, right, come out of that in our society. So so any new technology, any new tool, I think we, we should be questioning it along the way and doing because it but it is hard. It's hard. No one, you know, I wish we were all powerful and had these great seeing eyes and could say, where is this going and what's it leading to? And anyone who thinks they do for good or for bad, I think is, is fooling themselves and hopefully not fooling you because I don't think we know yet. And, the, and honestly, some of these programs to me remind me of kind of like when I did, I used to do, when I was a advertising creative, I did some auto industry work, right? And they have these car shows and they introduce these prototypes that are sort of fantasy cars. And they have all these amazing, they're concept cars, but they don't actually work, right? I feel that way about some of the stuff that gets put out into consumer hands for AI, right? It's sort of like, ooh, it's magic. But I don't think it's necessarily where the industry is going or what will actually get made and be supported, right? Right. Definitely. At the early days of the internet, who would guess that would have like mobile devices that, you know, will be right. internet driven apps and so on. But I think the core question we should always be asking is who is benefiting from this technology? In the case of early breast cancer detection and AI being used for that, the, who is benefiting? Wow, humans are benefiting, in my, you know, and probably some companies that are going to make this stuff. That is really exciting. Uh, who benefits from a chatbot that can write an insubstantive sort of airy email for you that says nothing in a lot of words, which is what I just did? You know, I don't know. Is, who's that helping? I, I don't think it's actually helping anyone. So I, I just saw this meme of like a person writing an email with ChatGPT and another person getting this email and doing a recap of that email with ChatGPT. That said, I had had a list of tests that are going to be administered to someone I know, and they were it just it was just like a bullet list, right? And you know, and I stuck it into I took it into Google's Bard, but similar, and just asked it to tell me what each of these tests was about, and that would have taken me like hours of time to go research. And, and indeed, I got a one sentence summary for so it was the name of the test, which is what I had, and just what it measured for. Super, super helpful, super, super fast. I have all kinds of questions about where did that content come from, <laughs> but it was super interesting, right? So I, you know, I see potential here to, to benefit people that we'll see. Wait and I, see. I had an idea. I had an idea this morning to have some kind of a web app that is connected to one of these technologies of AI where you put a URL and then it's somehow in a magical technological way scrape the HTML or data, and then mm. it tells you if it gives you accessibility score for screen readers. <laughs> there you like go. Yes. Yeah. Analyze. Analyze me. 
for accessibility. And, and, and I, I think it's like right now with all of the technology exists out there, it's relatively easy to create something like that. Like the, and then it will improve the accessibility of many websites. So you can yeah. really take this thing to a positive direction if you're thinking creatively. Anyway. Absolutely. And thinking creatively is something only humans can do. And that is the relationship I have to this. Like I, I try to my job, I try to excel at the things that only a human can do. Right. <laughs> and if, and if, and then outsource the things that anyone can do. Right. And like so that's, yes. Like, well, even then I've had to rewrite all the emails, so I don't know if we're there yet, but. Right. And Janet was a lot of fun to have you today in our 100th episode. It's been a pleasure. 100 is a huge accomplishment. So congrats. Huge honor to have you. And maybe I could have you for the 200th episode as well. We could, uh, <laughs> we could have some kind of... A... <laughs> it would be an anniversary, <laughs> yeah. but without the years. Yeah. Thank you so much. And thank you, the listeners, for staying with us in this fascinating conversation with Jen Shiv. Feel free to follow Jen on Medium and also to reach out to her if you have any questions. If that's okay, Jen, is it okay? Yeah, I'm easy to find on LinkedIn. I might be slow to reply, but I do try to respond to everyone who takes awesome. the time. So if you have any question about mentorship or questions like what kind of problems you're solving today because <laughs> you, you're looking to get into leadership, ask Jen. Feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions as well. And thank you for sticking around. My name is Yuval Keshtehe. I'm the founder of the UX Writing Hub. Feel free to check our website. We have a free UX writing course that have also some generative AI components and how to do user research with artificial intelligence, which is new and to a lot of people. So check it out. And see you next time. That's about it. Bye.